0: The context of this chapter is just before the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Verses 1 through 7 contain a message uh, the Lord had for the king of Judah, whose name was Zedekiah. Uh, The remainder of the chapter is is a message to the people. Um, God takes issue with the people concerning their their treatment of slaves. And we're going to see in this chapter that, that many of the people of Judah made what appeared to be a moral change because they thought that it was going to help them in the predicament they had found themselves in. But however, when their circumstances improved just a little bit, they quickly returned to their disobedience. Uh, That's why I've titled this message tonight, Foxhole Religion. Foxhole Religion can be defined as a religion... A religious commitment made during a time of crisis when a person believes there's no earthly help available to them. Sometimes in America we call that jailhouse religion. And you think, well, all else has failed, maybe I'll talk to God about it, and I'll make these changes in my life, and then things will be okay. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. But the first thing I want you to see here is in verses 1 through 7. Jeremiah is told here to warn the king of Judah. Look look at verse 1, and you'll see the time of the warning. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. So this is the last siege against Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar came with his army and as well he came with armies of other nations that had been subjugated to him. If you read the book of Daniel chapter 3 verses 2 through 4, it shows the power that Nebuchadnezzar had over these surrounding nations. Babylon was so powerful that when they fought a war they would force these other nations to fight in the war with them against a particular enemy. So if they ruled over you, they would say, you come and you bring soldiers and you help us fight. Now, why did Nebuchadnezzar bring such a large army against a weakened people? Because when you look at Jerusalem, you can see that they're already weakened. So you wonder, why did he enlist all of these other nations to do this? Was he concerned about the God of Israel? Had he heard the stories of how even though Israel at times had been small, God had defeated large armies through them? Uh, Was he trying to intimidate them with this very large army so they would just surrender and not fight so that they would have the least collateral damage on Nebuchadnezzar's side? Or was he concerned about Egypt? Was he concerned about the Egyptians coming up and helping Israel? And that's why he brought all these masses of armies. If you were to put me in a corner, I think I would say that's probably the reason. He was thinking, well, if Egypt comes up, no telling what they've got up their sleeve, I'm going to make sure I've got enough armies to destroy Egypt and Jerusalem here. Now I want you to see in verses 2 to 3 the message to Zedekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. I mean, he could not be any more clear with Zedekiah. He says, the Lord is giving this city to Babylon. This city is going to be burned to the ground, and you're going to be delivered to the king of Babylon. You're going to be taken to that nation. Now, this isn't the message Zedekiah wanted to hear. You remember back in chapter uh, 32 how he responded to that message. He wanted the prophet to give him a more encouraging message. He got so mad at Jeremiah. He said, you know, tell me something positive. But the message, while being negative, is an honest one. And it should have led Zedekiah to a place where he just surrendered. And he said, you know what, there's no way I can beat Babylon. God said I can't. And Zedekiah's actions, particularly his attempt to make an alliance with Egypt, only hurt his cause and led to more death. What he needed to understand was he was going to stand before the king of Babylon. And the more he fought against that king, the worse it would be when he had to stand before him. So he needed to prepare himself for that. And so then God tells Zedekiah how he will die. He tells him how he will die. Look at verses 4 through 7. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, You shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained." So, something very interesting here. Zedekiah is not going to die during the invasion. He's going to be captured. You remember what happened. His sons are killed before him. His eyes are plucked out, but he will not die. He would be taken to Babylon in peace. Now, what does that mean, in peace? Well, a couple of things it could mean. Number one, it could mean that he he doesn't die in battle. He dies in a time of peace, not in a time of battle. Number two, it could mean that he dies in a peaceful land, Babylon. Or number three, it could mean that he died by natural causes. But surprisingly, there's some honor surrounding his death. His death is going to be marked by the burning of incense, which was customary for kings. An example of that can be found in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, and verse 14. The people are going to mourn for Zedekiah. They're going to say, Alas, O Lord! Which, by the way, stands in contrast to the death of Jehoiakim, of whom Jeremiah said, They shall not lament him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, His Majesty. Chapter 22, verse 18. Now, did this mourning for him? Did it happen in Babylon? Or did it happen sometime after they returned to Jerusalem? We're not sure. Because we don't really know exactly when Zedekiah died. But I do want to point something out in verses 6 and 7. At this point there were only 3 fortified cities left for the Jews. There was Jerusalem, Azekah and Lachish. Lachish and Azekah were southeast of Jerusalem. In 1935, archaeologists discovered what became known as the Lachish letters. Google it sometimes, not right now. But Google it sometimes. The letters were written in Hebrew. And they were correspondence between two military officers. And the dating of the letters was around the time of King Zedekiah's reign. And one of the letters contained this sentence. Listen to this sentence. It said, we are watching for the smoke signals of Lachish because we do not see Azekah." Isn't that interesting? What is that? That is correspondence between two military officers who are looking, and they're saying, look, um, Azekah, that town, it's fallen. And then that shows you that that what the Scripture says here is is really historically true. these are the last two fortified cities that are standing outside of Jerusalem here. And remember, they're in the south, and, and the invaders are coming from the north, so they're working their way down. So those of you who are into the history and archaeology of the Bible, a very interesting thing. Look it up sometime, the the letters of Lachish. Very interesting information there. Now the second thing I want you to see is, is Jeremiah warns the people concerning their broken covenant. Now, Zedekiah made a covenant to free the Hebrew slaves. Look at verse 8. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother... And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Now, Hebrews could make themselves uh, what we would probably call indentured servants. In other words, if if you had a debt you could not pay to somebody, you could become an indentured servant to that person and pay off the debt by doing that. God made provision for that in His Word. You can see that in Exodus 21 and in Deuteronomy chapter 15. But evidently, the the, the people were now ignoring the conditions that God had put on this voluntary slavery. Hebrews could only be kept for a maximum of six years. After that, they had to be released. And so Zedekiah, recognizing that that law was not being kept that that law was being broken very regularly, enters into a covenant to release the Hebrew slaves. And and a whole lot of people had had kept these slaves for far longer than they should have, and they entered into the covenant as well. Now, you say, well, why in the world did Zedekiah do this? What was was his motive for this? Well, Well, we don't know for sure, but I want to give you some possible reasons. First of all, he may have done this to please God. Maybe he thought, well, if I do this, the Lord will save Jerusalem. This is one way we're breaking God's law. If if we stop breaking God's law in this way, then maybe God will allow us to win this battle. Number two, maybe He did it to strengthen His army. Maybe He thought, well, hey, if we let all these slaves go, then these slaves will fight for us. They'll join our army because it's probably unlikely that they're going to fight for you if they're slaves. Or number three... It could have been to give relief to the slave owners because with all of the horrible things that were happening in Jerusalem, with all of the the, the lack of resources, all of the inflation, for lack of a better term, it was probably costing a whole lot of money to keep those slaves, to feed those slaves, take care of those slaves. But whatever the reason... Zedekiah led many of the Jewish people to release these Hebrews that they were keeping as slaves. Now, in verse 11, you see that the people soon broke that covenant that they made. Look at verse 11. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjugation as slaves. So in a very short time, the people, they broke their promise. Now, now, why? You say, why did they break their promise? I think the answer can be found in verse 21. And Zedekiah, king of Judah and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies, and to the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the kings of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. You see that phrase? Which has withdrawn from you. See, for a short period of time, Babylon withdrew from Jerusalem. Why did they do that? You see in chapter 37, they do this because they have to go fight the Egyptians. So they leave off battling against against Jerusalem for a very short time. They go down and fight the Egyptians and they destroy them. So with a lull in the battle, the people probably thought, Hey, the Lord delivered us. It worked. We made a covenant. We let the slaves go and the Lord heard us. Now, what does this prove? This proves that the covenant they made was for nothing but show. There was no change in their heart concerning the sin they committed, the breaking of the law of God. They changed their behavior because they hoped it would simply change their circumstances. And so when their circumstances improved, it was business as usual with them. And so that's why so quickly they break covenant. And so God now addresses the nation. Look what he says in verses 12 to 16 the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you must free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name which each of you took back when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. So God just reminds them of the law that he gave them for these indentured servants. Notice he begins by reminding them, "Hey, you're this whole nation was in slavery and I brought all of y'all out of slavery." The Jewish people for if any people should have been sensitive to this, it should have been the Jewish people because for over 400 years they were slaves. They were slaves to the Egyptians, but God said, "I brought you out of that. I set you free." And so God gave these specific instructions for these Hebrew indentured servants that they couldn't be kept for more than six years. Now, the seventh year, some of you may be saying, well, no, it says seven years. Well, the seventh year was a year of rest anyway. They couldn't work then anyway. So it was six years, and then a year off, and then released. And once they were released, they weren't supposed to be enslaved again. And God says, you know, this is nothing new. You guys have been doing this for generations. And God commends them for their recent repentance. He says, hey, you did repent. He recognize this. hey, you, you released the slaves. You made a covenant in the temple. Now I want you to understand this. God never asked them to do this. God never asked them to make a covenant. On their own accord, they made a show of things. On their own accord, they said they were going to make a covenant to God. But then after making that covenant to God, they broke it. And in doing so, they profaned the name of God. They took the name of the Lord in vain. They made a vow in the name of God and then they broke it. The Bible says it's better not to make a vow at all than to make a vow and to break it. Now God then responds to the sins of the people in verses 17 through 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah king of Judah and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives and to the hand of the army of the king of Babylon which is withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So God says, you want to be free? He says, I'll set you free. But the freedom he gives isn't a good one. It's a freedom from himself. Which means freedom from the protection of the Lord. He says, I'm going to set you free to sword. I'm going to set you free to disease. I'm going to set you free to famine. And as a nation, when the world looks at you, they'll be horrified. The world will look on you with scorn and disdain. No one will ever say that they want to be like the Jewish people. Verse 18 is an interesting verse talking about the calf that's divided up there. Um, That's a reference to a covenant making custom. The parts of an animal were divided up, and those who made a covenant with one another would walk between the pieces, and, and it symbolized a curse. It was essentially saying, If I break this curse, may what has happened to these animals who are cut in pieces happen to me. It was a custom something they did. Odd to us, but normal to them. God says, just like the calf that was cut into pieces, those who broke covenant with me will be cut into pieces. You've cursed yourselves. Zedekiah, the officials, the people of Jerusalem, they're going to be handed over to the Babylonians. And once the war is finished, there'll be so many dead bodies, you won't be able to bury them. They'll just be out there for the scavengers. You see, this lull in the war had brought false hope to the people in Jerusalem. The Babylonians stopped long enough to fight the Egyptian army. But the Lord would bring the Babylonians back. And they would finish what they started. And when they finished, there would be nothing left at the city. Now I want us to think for a moment tonight about the sin mentioned in this chapter. Because I think it's a very important uh, topic for, for, even, for even us today. It's a common sin. that there, there are many people who make promises because they need divine help. As a pastor, I, I have seen it so often. People who need divine help. And they make a quick promise here's here's just a few reasons that I've personally witnessed people make a vow to God and then break that vow I've seen them do it to uh, save a marriage to tell a wife hey if you don't leave me I, I, God, you, God if you'll help her not leave me I'll do everything you've told me to do I've seen it for a person to be physically healed Lord if, if, if you'll just heal me I had him tell me, you know, you know Brother Kyle, if, if the Lord would just heal me, I'll serve Him all my whole life. I'll be in church every time the doors are open. I've seen the same thing for someone else to be physically healed. A husband or a wife or a child. Oh God, if you'll just heal him, I'll give you everything of me. I've seen them do it to get out of legal trouble. Oh Lord, if you'll, just, if you'll just get me out of this trouble, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my whole life. I've seen them do it to get out of financial trouble as well. I've seen it over and over and over again. And it breaks my heart that so many forget the promises they made to God once the storm passes. Now here's the interesting thing. We're under no obligation to make a vow to God. Nowhere are you told in the Bible, make a vow to God. But if you do make a vow to God on your own, if you enter into a vow on your own with God, then there's an obligation on your part to then keep that vow unless that vow was like Jephthah's vow, a vow that would lead to a sin. Throughout the years, I've really seen this this illustrated in benevolence ministry. The church will um, help someone out financially. And I don't know why people do this, but I've had so many tell me, they say, Pastor, I'm going to pay the church back. I'm going to pay every penny of this back. I've never been a pastor of a church where we ask somebody to pay back the money that we help them with their life bill or whatever. Never been a part of it. Never seen that happen. And we should, we should never do that either. And I always tell the people, there's no reason for you to say that. There's no reason for you to say that you're going to pay us back because we're not asking for you to pay us back. Oh, I am. I'm going to pay every penny of this back. But in all my years of pastoring, over 20 years and, and seeing so many people do that, I've never seen a single person pay it back. Ever. In fact, I don't usually see them either. Amen? But many, many times I've had them tell me, I'm going to pay it back, I'm going to pay it back, I'm going to pay it back. Now here's the, here's the thing that's sad. They didn't have to obligate themselves, but they did. They did obligate themselves. And God takes vows seriously. Whether you're making that vow to Him or whether you're making that to His church. If a person stands before church or stands before the leader of that church and says, hey, I'm promised to pay all this back, it's the same as making that promise to God. Because the whole point is what? God's blessing me through you. God's blessing me through this church. I'm I'm going to pay this back. You're under no obligation to make a vow. But if you make a vow, you are under obligation to keep that vow, like I said, unless the vow itself is sinful. Those who serve God because of what He does for them are not really serving God. And that's proven with time. Those who truly serve God, serve God out of gratitude for what He has done for them through Christ. Not for physical healing, not for financial reasons, not because He gave them a wife or a husband but because their sins have been paid for. True Christians serve God despite their circumstances because they know that despite their circumstances, their sins have been forgiven, and that's the biggest thing that could ever happen for them. Their sins are forgiven. By God's grace, they're going to heaven. And those who serve God with a true heart serve God when days are sunny but they also serve God when days are dark. If your relationship with God consists of, God, if you do this, then I'll do this, you don't really have a relationship with God at all. Let me say this because I think it's important. Days of prosperity reveal more about your relationship with God than days of trial do. Now, both, both are important. In our service to God. But both reveal things about us. But it seems to me, many more people forsake God in prosperity. When there's a lull in the battle. I want to share with you just two two quotes um, by Spurgeon concerning this. Number one, he said... Where one man has been ruined by adversity, 10,000 have been destroyed by prosperity. You hear that? Where one man has been ruined by adversity, 10,000 have been destroyed by prosperity. That's a great quote. That is a great quote. Because the truth is, normally when things are great and things are wonderful, God does not get our best. But when you go through a dark trial, when you go through as much hell on earth as is possible, you come out of there and I tell you what, you're humble. You're ready for fellowship with the people of God. You're ready for a touch from the Lord. But prosperity numbs us. You know, we talk about persecution in other worlds and other uh, regions and stuff. And then we think, oh man, look, persecution is so awful. But I'm not so sure that prosperity isn't worse than persecution. Because when you go to nations that are persecuted, I want to tell you, you don't see half the sin that you do in nations that have prosperity in them. We're such a prosperous nation that we're sitting around debating if boys can be called girls and girls can be called boys. That's That's where we are as a nation. But I want to say, if we were just worried about where we we're going to eat tomorrow, that would not even be on our radar. Amen, it would not be on our radar. And so I'm not so sure that that prosperity isn't worse. The second, the second quote by Spurgeon is this, "Believe me, there is no trial as great as no trial." Wow, there is no trial as great as no trial." That's a great quote. And surprisingly, it doesn't have to be much prosperity for people to forsake God. Here, what was it? It was just a lull in the battle. It was just a minute. And for just a minute that they went off and fought the Egyptians. They said, hey, everything's great. Let's go back to normal. For many people, all it takes for them to forsake a promise or a vow they made to God is the money to pay this month's light bill. Oh, I got the money to pay this month's light bill. That's all it took. And now they've forgotten God. A suspended sentence. They're not going to jail. The sentence is suspended. That's all it took. Now they're, they're forget God. A treatment plan. We think we can handle the cancer. You think you can handle it? Praise the Lord. But then they forget God. Our spouse decides to stay rather than leave. Oh, she's staying. And then you forget God. Just a lull. Nothing ginormous. Just a lull in the battle. Man, we are a fickle people, aren't we? You know, when I worked in the prison... I would often hear comments about how people in prison had jailhouse religion. And they were right. There was a lot of people in prison with jailhouse religion. But, but they aren't the only ones with that type of religion. Many people on the outside have that same type of religion. When their back is against the wall, they seek God. When things are going well, they have no use for God. Sadly, that describes many people. Who call themselves Christians, and um, you know I don't mean to to be so pessimistic here, but but it's such a heartbreaking thing as as a pastor I've seen it so many times. People come to my office or want me to come to their home, and they're, they're so apparently broken, so apparently humble because of the awful circumstances, and they have so many promises for God. And then to see him fall away so quickly. You know, I remember one time I had a guy like that, and it was was a guy who was an older guy, and he needed a liver transplant. And uh, they weren't giving him much hope to even get a liver. And he had wrecked his own liver, okay? But he was coming to church, and we were excited. About God doing a wonderful thing in his life. So we began to pray, Lord, 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 provide a little, provide a little, provide a little. And one night, in the middle of the night, middle of the night, I got a phone call. It was late. And they had a little. And it's just a young creature. I jumped in my car. I drove hours to another town to be with this person for their liver transplant. It was in the wee hours of the morning. And we were praying and we were talking. I remember him going away on that journey saying, God's got it, God's got it. And then, and I remember him saying this. I remember, well, I'll never forget it. He said, I'm going to serve him with all I've got. Because he was so happy. Because he was so near death. God had provided him liver. And I got out there, you know, praying. And all those doctors and surgeons and everything everywhere. And the next morning, somebody had busted out my windshield with a pool stick. The police came up there. I had to call the police. Call the police and. Jacksonville, Florida police came up there and they needed my information and then they said I had a warrant for my arrest and they were about to arrest me and I said, my goodness, something has caught up in me from my past and they had placed a crazy charge on me from Georgia that wasn't even my charge, the person who had my same exact name they were about to take me to jail, so I thought, what the world's going on here, you know, that's a story for a different time they didn't want to extradite, so thank God for that and, and and we eventually got it got it taken care of, but Went to the hospital finally after almost going to jail in front of my father-in-law. And uh, everything went great. And this guy was so happy. And his family was so happy. And God healed him. And that man is still alive today. And doing great. Defied all the odds, made so many promises to God, but I'm gonna tell you, it didn't take no time till you didn't see him in church no more. Before he was on visitation, he was at every service, he was doing everything. But once he got, it was over. Y'all. I'm sure he'd probably tell you, "Oh, I still love God, yeah, but you made all these vows, you made all these promises." And then I as your pastor, I don't even see you anymore. My windshield got busted out. I got up at midnight. Traveled hours to be by your bedside. Doesn't mean that. But it breaks my heart. A Lord of the Bible. And you forget everything you ever said you'd do for God. Let's not be Be like that, y'all. Let's not be like that. And I'm going to tell you what, it ought not to take some horrible thing to happen to you for you to make a vow to God. Because the only vow you ever needed to make was when you got on your knees and you said, God, I'm a sinner. And I need Jesus. And I give my life. That's the only vow, y'all. And that vow right there should have been enough to take you from the womb of salvation to the tomb. It ought not to take something to put our back against the wall for us to serve God. We ought to just serve Him because He saved us. He gave us grace. He gave us. Never again do we have to say we make a vow to God because we've already made one. serve Christ because of who He is and the salvation He's given us. Amen. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, what He means to us. Help us to never be like these who had foxhole religion. When times got tough, they made a vow And when there was a lull in the battle, it was business as usual. God, you're worthy. And you have saved us from hell. May we serve you like we believe that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.